Well, let me begin with two questions. Here's the questions. Are there people that the gospel can't change? And are there places that the gospel can't reach? Are there people the gospel can't change? Are there places the gospel can't reach? I think you and I, we often think uh, that the answer to that question uh, is, or both those questions, is yes, don't we? Uh, maybe we have people in our lives, people that we love, people that we would love to see come to faith in Jesus. It seems uh, so difficult, it seems so unlikely that they would ever uh, actually profess faith in him. And yet the book of Acts, one of the things the book of Acts does is it teaches us to doubt that instinct. Turn back with me to chapter 1 very quickly, Acts chapter 1, uh, or just listen if you, if you wish to do that. Acts chapter 1, and listen to Jesus. Jesus is about to, to ascend to the Father, and he's gathered his disciples around him. And Jesus says this to them in verse 8. Jesus says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Jesus says two things are going to happen. And he says they're as certain as one another. The Holy Spirit is going to come and the disciples are going to go. And this small, this really weak, doubting group of followers of Jesus, they're about to be part of something that will change the world. And Acts chapter 17 is one of the ways in which Jesus' words in chapter 1, one of the ways those words come true. If you turn back to it, it's probably the, the most famous sermon that Paul's ever preached, I think. That would be, uh, probably be fair to say. And it's a sermon that's here to give us confidence. Because what it does is it teaches you and I tonight that the gospel can go anywhere. And the gospel can change anyone. Now, as we look at it tonight, I've got um, three headings. And as we look at uh, verses 16 to 21 first, this is the setting. And as we look at the setting, uh, verses 16 to 21, I need to tell you that I was actually in Athens on Tuesday. Okay, the Athens of the north. That's what they call Edinburgh, isn't it? I, I'd like... I'd like Athens to be called the Edinburgh of the South. That's why I think that would be better, don't you? Um, because Athens uh, and Edinburgh, like Athens, it's, a, it's a, a city of culture, a city of history. It's a city, and I can say this because I was born in Edinburgh, it's a city with people in it who like to think of themselves as, I don't know, intellectually sophisticated and uh, Andy said this morning that the whole of life is sermon preparation. And as my train was pulling into Haymarket, uh, I saw a poster and it said this. It said this, discover your inner philosopher. I got my 
phone out to take a picture of this. Discover your inner philosopher. Join us at the School of Philosophy for a course of 10 sessions. We draw on philosophies from East and West, exploring the wisdom within each of us and how it can equip us practically in everyday life. And then in big capital letters, only 20 pounds for the term. And I thought, I'm going to use that on Sunday night. And I thought, that's a, bit, that's a bargain as well. 20 pounds. And I also thought Paul would have probably gone along to that uh, course. And you can probably see why I say that if you look at um, the first few verses of our reading. And Paul is in Athens. He's waiting for Silas. He's waiting for Timothy. And Athens was the center of uh, Greek culture. It was the center of Greek philosophy, Socrates, Plato, Aristotle. Verse 21 Look what it says about these people, the the citizens, the Athenians, they love to discuss the big ideas. So in Athens, you could see the Acropolis, you could see the Parthenon, you could ask the big questions all day long. Um, Athens was the place to be. But look at the impact of being in that place. Look at the impact it had on Paul. Paul's waiting for his friends. Paul's got time on his hands, and he's looking around, and yet look at verse 16. Paul is provoked. Paul's provoked because the city was full of idols. Now, the scholars, they tell us here that that the idea here is, is of a city that is under idols, Um, Not just full of idols, under them, kind of swamped by idols. An idol is anything, of course, that uh, you and I place at the center of our lives, that that kind of takes the place of God himself. Um, Apparently, there are more sheep in New Zealand than people. Well, in Athens, there were more idols than people. And Paul was provoked by this. And Paul was unsettled, disturbed by this. Actually, I find his reaction quite unsettling myself. I I find it very easy, I don't know if you're the same, but I find it very easy to walk around a city like Edinburgh and to be completely unaffected. I'm unaffected by what I see, just caught up in my own concerns. Well, Paul was different. Paul was a man who saw beneath the surface of things. And Paul knew that men and women were made for, for more. That men and women had dignity. That they were made to live before the face of God. Made to worship him. And it's interesting. Paul's big concern, I think, uh, really is for God's glory. And this is the, the ultimate thing that, um, the ultimate reason for his evangelism. And he was, he was grieved that, that men and women failed to honor the God who'd made them. It's, it's really challenging, isn't it? Because of what he saw, Paul started to speak. Luke tells us that he reasoned and he tried to persuade And look where he did it. He he spoke to anyone. 
So Paul was comfortable in the synagogue. Paul was uh, able to speak to, to Jewish people, to, to religious insiders. He was able to talk to them and, or cared and wanted to speak to them about their scriptures. But that's not all, is it? Paul also went to those outside. Uh, end of verse 17, the marketplace. He was there every day. In other words, Paul knew that Christianity had something to say to everybody. And I think sometimes we think that uh, the gospel, it's just for um, the, the kind of people who look like they might believe, kind of good people, nice people. The reality is, of course, that people like that are often, well, they're, they're often the least likely, aren't they, to, to really see their need for Jesus. They can be the hardest people to persuade. Paul went, Paul went and spoke in the marketplace. Sometimes we can think the Christian message, it, it only addresses kind of spiritual concerns. We can think it's got little or nothing to say to people who work in politics or business or, or journalism or the arts. Well, no, Jesus is bigger than that. Jesus is much, much more important than that. And the God who made this world has got something to say to everyone. The gospel, the gospel connects to the whole of life. And William Wilberforce, um, he, he wanted to be a pastor. And he thought that he should be. Uh, but maybe you know the story. He was encouraged by John Newton, the author of Amazing Grace. He was encouraged by him to stay in politics. And because he did that, because he decided not to do the kind of thing that I'm doing tonight, well, he was able to have a profound impact on uh, British society, profound impact for good. He, he was able to help end the slave trade. Uh, maybe tonight you're a student or you're, you're younger and, and you're someone who's starting out, you're someone who's thinking about your career this is just a little side application, I think, from this passage, but I think it's worth making nonetheless. Never think that the only way or the very best way to serve God is to, to go into what we, we sometimes call Christian ministry. No, Christians. Christians are called to live, to speak, to follow Jesus everywhere. And yet, look at verse 18. We need to remember that like Paul... You and I will often be misunderstood as Christians. And we see that, don't we, in the, in the reaction. What is this babbler? What does this babbler wish to say? Uh, Luke mentions two groups there, the Epicureans, the Stoics. The Epicureans, they uh, believed in chance. This is very simplistic, uh, really. The, they believed in chance, and so they uh, believed that life was just all about the pursuit of pleasure, uh, the Stoics, that's the name we, we, a word we use today, isn't it? To speak about people with a stiff upper lip. The Stoics, they believed in fate. And Paul's message, it, it confused them. Uh, they seemed to have thought that he was speaking about two gods, Jesus and the resurrection, uh, Anastasis. And maybe a man and a woman god. And as a result, they, they wanted to take Paul to the Areopagus. Now, someone was telling me this morning that they'd been to the Areopagus. 
And uh, it's, a, it's a rock, is it? It's a rock located northwest of the Acropolis. You can visit it today. And uh, at this rock, legal cases were discussed. They were debated. And it's here that Paul comes. It's here that Paul has the opportunity uh, to speak to speak to these people about Jesus. By the way, this, uh, I think there's an encouragement here. Paul's conversations, Paul's willingness to be faithful, well, it causes this second greater opportunity to open up. And I think that should encourage us tonight. Sometimes we try to live uh, to, for Jesus. Uh, when we do that, he, he, he sometimes, um, even when we're misunderstood, he, he often gives a new opportunity a new way to serve him. And we see that happen here. And in verses uh, 22 to 31, we move uh, from, as John Stott puts it, from what Paul saw and what Paul felt to what Paul said. In verses 22 to 31, we hear the address. The address. What did Paul actually say to these people in Athens when he had the opportunity? I think Paul does three things uh, in this speech or this sermon, this talk, whatever we want to call it. And the first thing Paul does is he connects. He connects. You can see that if you look at the beginning of verse 22. Notice how he begins. He's, he's polite, he's respectful, and what he does is he identifies something in their world that connects with the gospel. He says, as I walked through your city, I saw an inscription to the unknown God. The unknown God. Now, I can't uh, read that without thinking about Donald Rumsfeld. Uh, He was the former U.S. Defense Secretary, and speaking about terrorist threats, he once said, as we know, there are no knowns. There are things we know we know. We also know there are known unknowns. That is to say, we know there are some things we do not know, but there are also unknown unknowns. And uh, the ones we don't know, we don't know. And he kind of goes on and on and on like this. Uh, The unknown unknowns uh, are the things, the the terrorist threats we need to be uh, afraid of, aren't they? Well, the Athenians, they, they didn't know the true and living God. And Paul makes him known. Paul connects. Paul builds a bridge. Part of that connection, interestingly, part of it involves quoting secular authors. Uh, We see that in verse uh, 28. Maybe your, your Bible's got a footnote like mine does, and maybe you expect that this reference, in him we live and move and have our being, maybe we think, oh, that's going to be from somewhere in the Old Testament. Well, no, they're spoken by a Greek poet, Epimenides. We are indeed his offspring. That's not from the book of Genesis, but from another Greek poet. This is what we often call general revelation. We often find truth in unexpected places. Human beings who do not know God, well, they can still say things that are true. You can say things that are true about human beings. 
things that kind of ring true. And you and I know this, don't we? Sometimes we're watching a film or, or we're reading a, a novel and there, there's something in it. There's, there's kind of wisdom there. There's truth there. It's, it's not scripture, of course. But all truth is God's truth. And I think what Paul does here, it should encourage us to try and make connections with others. There are lots of people in our culture today who are waking up to the impact of Christianity on the West. People like Tom Holland, people like Ian Hersey Ali, they're, they're showing that the values all of us hold dear, things like compassion and freedom and democracy, equality, they're discovering that all of those things, they are all fruit from the Christian tree. And the wonderful truth is that the gospel, it's never far away when you are talking to somebody about justice or human rights or equality or many things that we hold dear. So Paul connects, doesn't he? But that's not all Paul does. Paul also corrects. He connects and he corrects. Look at verse 24. Paul says that the God who made all things does not live in temples. And God made everything. So you can't keep God in a building. Paul says God knows where you live. Verse 26. Someone has said God knows our history. God knows our geography. God sees us. God places us. And he does it, verse 27, that we might reach out to him. Well, look at verse 29. Paul says we ought not to think something. He's correcting, isn't he? We ought not to think. God is not some little idol. Paul says we are God's offspring. We are God's image. He made us. We don't make God. God is not something human beings thought up. God is not a projection into, into the sky, into the universe. Paul is saying, you're wrong if you think like that. Or look at the little word, nor, verse 25. Nor is he served by human hands. See, the Athenians, they were kind of brought up to believe that the gods, they, they needed their sacrifices. Well, no, says Paul. No, God doesn't need anything. Listen to Psalm 50. I have no need of a bull from your stall or of goats from your pens, for every animal of the forest is mine, and a cattle on a thousand hills. If I were hungry, God says, I would not tell you, for the world is mine and all that is in it. This is actually pastorally very, very important uh, for us to think about. Most of us here tonight are Christians, I think. And yet we really need to grasp this. God does not need anything. God needs nothing from us. Instead, God is the God who gives everything to us. See, I think if we, if we think God depends on us, that will have an impact on the way we serve him. 
If God needs me, well, there can sometimes be a feeling, can't there, that, well, I've not done enough for him. Or I can become proud, can't I? If, if proud of all I've done for him. But the real God, the true God, doesn't need us. Chooses to love us. God always gives to you and I. He always does this from a place of absolute fullness, completion. God doesn't bless us to, to take from us, to manipulate us. No, everything we have from him is a pure gift. God is full. God gives good gifts to people who love him. And God gives good gifts to people who don't love him. It's what James says, isn't it? Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. So Paul connects, Paul corrects, but Paul also confronts. That's the third thing, isn't it? Paul confronts. And this is what we call in uh, sermon preparation, this is what we call the so what question. Look at verse 30. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. He commands. I think command is a very strong word, isn't it? Uh, there's not many people that could command us to do something. And Paul is saying this message demands a response. Paul's saying there's no neutrality here. There's no third, day, uh, third way here. God has fixed the day when he will judge the world. And human beings want this. And yet human beings fear this. Uh, we, we run from God. And yet we run towards him, don't we? And we want justice. And yet we also have consciences. Um, you and I tonight, we, we know we, we might want justice in this world, but, but we know we are accountable too. We know that we're part of the problem. And actually, wonderfully, that's... The first step, isn't it, in becoming a Christian, recognizing our guilt before God, recognizing our need. Someone who kind of caught a glimpse of this was a man called Alexander Solzhenitsyn. He was someone who had plenty of time to reflect on evil, and evil done to him when he was in the gulag. Well, listen to what he says. If only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds, and it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. But the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. And who is willing to destroy a piece of his own heart? He's, he's saying, isn't he? He's recognizing something of his own, his own flaws, his own accountability. And you and I tonight, we're not far from Easter. It's not that far off, is it? 
And yet look what Paul says about Easter. Paul says the resurrection of Jesus is proof. Proof that one day God will judge this world. Verse 31, he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Paul's saying you can know that one day the world will be judged because one man has already been raised from the dead. That means all people one day will be raised. All people one day will face him. And I think this is a really important note for us to to remember. If we have a gospel, if we have outreach as a church, if we have evangelism that only uh, connects, only maybe just subtly corrects, never confronts people, Well, we're not giving people the whole truth, are we? We need to pray. We should ask God to use the longing lots of people have today for justice to lead them to the Lord Jesus. See, Lewis says, when we we say that's not fair, for whatever reason, whatever age we are, whether we're a toddler or, I don't know, my age, whenever we say that's not fair, well, we're all showing, aren't we, that we know there's a, there's a standard. And we know there's right and wrong in the universe. And deep down, we want justice. And yet, we need to see that we're accountable. We need forgiveness. So the setting, the address, lastly, the reaction, verses 32 to 34, the reaction Now, uh, it might surprise you to know this, but there's some people who think that Paul failed in Athens. There's quite a lot of um, uh, commentators and and Christians who who think maybe he failed. They say that because of what happens next. If you look at your Bibles, you can see that Paul goes uh, to Corinth. And in 1 Corinthians, what does Paul say? He says, I resolved to know nothing while I was with you, but Christ crucified. And so some people um, say, they, they say, well, Paul, he kind of must have sort of messed up in Acts 17. Um, he didn't maybe directly speak about the cross. And so he was kind of kicking himself. And he resolved, he decided, when I get to Corinth, it's, it's going to just be the cross. Uh, I think that's probably a bit mistaken. I think um, to assume the only gospel presentation that works as a simple one is, is wrong, I think. It's probably too narrow of you. Uh, Stott, one of the other commentators, he says that what we have in Acts 17, it's probably really a summary of what Paul said. And you can't really talk about the resurrection, can you, without talking about Jesus' death. But interestingly, when Paul says, I resolve to know nothing with you but Christ crucified in 1 Corinthians. He's going to go on in that letter uh, to talk about the importance of that message to their Christian lives. He's going to talk about a reality, death before life, suffering before glory. 
He's going to tell those people that that reality is not just for the beginning of their Christian lives, but for the whole of their Christian lives. So I'm persuaded that Paul didn't fail because really, look at the end of Acts 17. Look at the impact. I think if you and I, if we saw this, this kind of response when we shared the gospel with others, I don't think we'd think we'd failed. There's mocking. Uh, there's reflection. And yet there's also real faith, isn't there? There's mocking. You and I should never be surprised when people hear something of the Christian message and they reject it. And we should never be surprised too when people kind of hear it and they say as these people did, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll hear you again. And we want time. We want to weigh things up. Sometimes that kind of reflection, it's just deflection, isn't it? But look at verse 34, converts. Two of them are named, Dionysus and Damaris. There's others as well. There were people who could trace the beginning of their life with the Lord Jesus to that day. And you and I, I think we should expect to see these three responses. We should expect mockery. And we shouldn't be surprised when people deflect But we shouldn't be surprised too when people believe. Actually, I think that third thing, that is the thing that probably surprises us the most sometimes, isn't it? And yet all over the world today, the gospel is bearing fruit. And this passage shows us a message that can get anywhere. It can go from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth. It can break into the academy the university, it can get into your office, it can get right up into the places of influence in our culture, and you and I should pray for believers to be used by God in those places. You see, look at Dionysus, look how he's described, the Areopagite. He was right there in the Areopagus. He was, he was a key member. He was probably a kind of judge. And yet he came to believe. Think of the person speaking. Think of Paul. Think of how angry and opposed he was to the Lord Jesus. And yet God opened his eyes. God helped him see. Well, we began at the very beginning of Acts. As we close, I want you to turn right to the very end of Acts, to Acts 28. And recently I heard somebody point out, highlight how Acts ends, and Acts 28, uh, Paul's not in Athens, this time he's in another great city, he's in, he's in Rome, but look at the very last words of 
uh, the book of Acts. Look at verse 30. He lived there two whole years, this is Paul, at his own expense, and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. With all boldness, without hindrance. That's how Acts ends. It's just the beginning. And even tonight, God's word is unchanged, unchained. God's gospel is unstoppable. And this message, it will keep spreading and keep on spreading all the way until the risen one, the risen one returns. Well, let's pray together.